What's going on, everybody? And uh, welcome back. Um, so clearly, I have a little bit of a different background today. Uh, I am not in my office today. I'm actually at the, I would say, beautiful lake, but it's pretty cloudy outside, a little stormy. But but yeah, and that's why my hair is all frazzled and so forth. But, uh, you know, we won't talk about that. Um, so I'm actually here to chat with author Robert Reddick. We're going to talk a little bit about his brand new release as of today, the 6th of July, Sidewinders, which is uh, book two in the Fire Sacrament. Um, but uh, first off, Robert, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, it's pub day, which means my head is in the clouds. Didn't think this day would ever come, but I'm pretty darn happy. It's going well so far, thanks. <laughs> awesome. So, how are you? I'm good. Just a little hot. <laughs> Yeah, Aren't yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. I better say, I can, I can imagine uh, you, you guys. You know, I mentioned earlier, I was talking to Brian Stavely. Uh, you know, he's up in Vermont, and he said about how hot it was up there. And I, I feel like, uh, you know, kind of roles have reversed a little bit. It's not quite as it's more humid than hot down here. And then mm -hmm. you guys are just going through just like an insane heat wave up north. And I can't we don't, imagine. We don't have the developed resistance that I imagine you do. <laughs> And which, frankly, I think I had too when I, you know, I went to the University of Florida. I, I lived in Gainesville for six years, off and on. And um, yeah, yeah, I loved it there. Loved it. Um, and I lived in the middle of a cypress swamp with no AC, and it was great. Of course, I was, you know, in my early twenties. Um, and no, you know, the uh, the old uh, Southern Cracker Shack architecture kind of makes the best of a bad situation that way. With you know the the open uh, spaces at the roof so that the hot air doesn't get trapped, but travels through and mm -hmm. up on stilts. And then, you know, all the live oaks gave us lots of deep shade. And at three o'clock every day, there was a thunderstorm. So yeah, you know, out in the cypress swamp, you're basically just wearing a few rags right. <laughs> with your feet in a bucket of hot water on the worst days. So, <laughs> so back then I didn't mind and now it's a little harder, but yeah. Know. Yeah. I mean, cause you know, you, you, you so I guess what what's a normal high up there during this? Oh, who knows what normal is anymore? But I mean, so you know, I've been coming and going in New England now for geez, twenty four years. And my wow. when I first came up here, I got a job as a stage critic um, in Maine, and uh, so further north still a little bit. But I distinctly remember going to um, some outdoor summer theater in the end of June. And we all sat down in our folding chairs to watch the show and snow flurries started coming down. You know, June, right? <laughs> and so I was like, I've gone to hell, <laughs> sort of what I was thinking, because I do not like to be cold. Um, right. So, you know, it's all been changing and changing and for the hotter, um, but this, you know, every summer breaks records now. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty scary. So. Gotcha. Yeah, it's just been so weird because, you know, down here, I think we've broken 90, maybe a handful of days where normally like 95 is about normal, uh, you know, with like 60, 70% humidity. <laughs> so it's just like, all right, if you don't have a pool, just jump in the bathtub. I mean, it's, yeah, it's so always pretty hot, but uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy. I, I can't. Cause like I said, Brian, Brian was, you know, he was like double fist in an iced coffee and a beer. <laughs> Why didn't week. I think of that before coming on the air? I should have made you just, myself. You just got ice water. Yeah. Plenty of ice water. Slacking. I guess Slacking. I decided to go for coherence. There you go. We'll see how that works out. <laughs> so, um, so like I always do, I just want to start out, you know, tell me, tell me about yourself, tell me about growing up. I mean, clearly 
you spent some time in Florida, which is, is pretty close to me uh, up here in Alabama, um, and just kind of how you got into writing, and then we'll go from there. Um, I, I don't know if I should say the, the, the screen's freezing up a bit. Is okay. that yeah? I, 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 it might just be my connection a little bit. I'm, like, okay. I'm yeah. sitting on Wi Fi, so <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, um, well, what to tell you about me? Um, I kind of have two hometowns really. I was born in Charlottesville, Virginia, and um, that's where all the family still is, um, or a lot of them. Um, it's where my parents are, it's where um, I went to school, I went to UVA. It's actually a fourth generation UVA, believe it or not. And, um, but then we moved out to Iowa City, Iowa when I was really young. And uh, we were out there until I was 16. Uh, so that also feels like a hometown. It was a wonderful place to be a kid. And then we came back to Charlottesville and uh, you know, I stayed there into my young adulthood and um, did all of high school there and, and college. Um, and then I, you know, I, I went to grad school in international development and that got me traveling all over the world. That was just an unbelievable privilege. I mean, I, I can't, I can't ever, ever know how much it changed my life, but uh, I started off uh, working and doing research in Argentina, where I went um, in 92 and 93 for long stays and traveled all over the, the southern cone of South America, you know, uh, mostly Argentina, but also Chile and a bit in Brazil and Paraguay. Um, wow. Hitchhiking, renting cars, getting in, you know, 27 hour long bus rides, uh, doing just things that, you know, you look back on them, you have memories where you know it happened, but you have to sort of do an internal double take to really believe that it happened. Yeah. There were so many of them from, from those years. I mean, um, I went out uh, to a place called Peninsula Valdez that uh, is this, this sort of a, a spade shaped almost island out in the middle of the Atlantic coast of Argentina. It's the size of Connecticut. And back then it had 200 people living on it. Um, and, you know, it's all provincial park, so it's, it's protected, but um, the, uh, the southern right whales and the elephant seals and the Magellanic penguins and terns and other things, they come in their tens of thousands to to reproduce there well you know the, the the whales in far fewer smaller numbers but um there are all these natural coves below sea cliffs and you can walk along the cliffs and look right down on like a family of whales with the calf you know being taught to swim and to surface and stuff and you know hear them breathing when you're camping at night and stuff and and you know i was there insane. to, to um, it just you know and you have to think well, was i there but i really was you know and uh, i was um I was writing about park rangers and the training of park rangers for my, my graduate work. And um, I hadn't realized it when I sort of dreamed up that plan, but uh, it had the benefit of meaning that, you know, for my job, I had to go to the most incredible corners of the country all over, you know, from the edges of Patagonia up into the subtropical rainforests. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and actually that's where it was, Peninsula Valdez is where um, the idea for the Chathran voyage came along because I was walking along in the mist and one of, along one of those cliffs and, you know, just hearing noises off in the fog. And I just had this idea of, you know, how many ships must have wrecked along that coast over the centuries. And, uh, you know, brain started churning and a few years later I was working on the Chathran voyage. Um, 
so you know then i uh, you know i married my partner who i met in graduate school um Massachusetts now, but um, she works in Colombia, among other places. So we went and, and lived in Colombia uh, after graduate school. And then she got a job for two years in Indonesia more recently. Uh, we, we lived there. So, you know, it's just been, it's been so good, you know, and um, most of it has been dumb luck that I, you know, sure, some planning that I, you know, went that way with a kind of parallel career, but right. uh, but even, even so, you know, I know it's just, it's so much privilege and so much luck that's let me do that. And, and slowly it filters into the writing, you know, usually years later, if I've been in a place, some of those, those rich experiences, you know, I, I, I can tell after the fact that they've made their way into the book. So they kind of just like seep out of your pores, like over time. Yeah, I think it's kind of like composting, you know, for your garden, you, you have to you throw all the material in and then you wait a season or two before it's ready to, to use. Um, mm -hmm. Something, you know, you hear about writers who like move to Paris and write a brilliant novel set in Paris at the same time. <laughs> no, that's not gonna be me. I'm too busy like walking the streets with my jaw hanging open at first. And then it's only later on, you know, that starts to work out. Gotta let it season. Actually, you know, bit. Yeah, that, you know, I always remember, I got to hear Umberto, um, Umberto Eco give a lecture once in San Francisco, and he was really fierce about this. He's like, all of you out there and half of you are writers, I know you are, don't you deny it. You're suffering, aren't you? And he has this great, you know, over the top personality, but then he, he gets to this point, he says, and you think that you should be writing about what happened to you Two minutes ago, it doesn't work that way, my friends. Listen to me. When 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 you are in love, you're in love. When somebody hits you in the chin, you say ah. You don't say, you don't come out with literature. No, that's it. ah is not literature. Ah is just an ejaculation. It's only later, later, when you crave a little while, that you can turn it into art. <laughs> <laughs> He's so flamboyant. I was like, okay, I'm never gonna forget this. <laughs> it's okay, I'm, I'm definitely jotting yeah. that down, keeping it in the, in the in the mind cage, as John Quinn would put it. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Um, Is that so, enough about me? <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, it's a it's a wonderful yeah. backstory. I mean, so, you know, very well traveled. Uh, you've had a lot of amazing experiences. It sounds like I mean, golly. Just, you know, walking around, just listening to all the animals. It's just, it's just insane to me. Um, tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, like when you, you know, what year was it you just like, were like, okay, I'm going to write a novel. Like you weren't just kind of like, I'm just going to jot some ideas down because I have this idea. Like when were you like, I'm going to take this and like make it into a full um, novel or series? You froze for a really long time, by the way. Oh gosh, I'm sure uh, I did. Okay, um, <laughs> okay, but uh, let's see. Did I think I heard the whole question? So when did I first think about it? Or when did you start like writing it like seriously? Like when, oh, when did you when did seriously. you get the, the moment you're like I'm going to turn this into a book? Well, you know, so when I went to school in Florida, um, I did get you know I got to do this incredible research and I got to do this great training and so on. But it turns out that that actual degree program it taught me a lot about myself in, in terms of also what I didn't want to do with my career, at least, you know, what's on the front burner for the career, mm -hmm. let's say. 
because I had my master plan involved, you know, several more decades of working really intensely in international development. But what I realized is that I was getting trained to be like a United Nations bureaucrat or an NGO bureaucrat. And I thought, well, I can maybe do that and then move up to, you know, a more glamorous version of that. But I realized that the, <laughs> the majority of people that I would was getting to know who had been through that program or similar programs, like five to 10 years later, they were still the bureaucrat. And that's mostly because most of the sort of policy work, it's just in an office, mm -hmm. you know? And not only that, but it's in an office writing in NGOEs, which is some of the most deadening boilerplate unbearable prose you will ever encounter, you know, buzzword upon buzzword upon buzzword, everything committee approved, you know, you can't say anything that might offend a donor, on and on and on. And I realized, my God, I, I'm, I'm signing up for a big chunk of my life just reading and taking seriously this horrible writing and I can't do that. So this is to say I shortened the plan. And I started moving the international development a little bit to the to the day job position and ambitions to get back to get serious about fiction earlier. So I finished that degree. I worked in it for a short time. And then I dove right into um, a novel uh, set in Argentina, actually. But then I was kind of done with Argentina. So that would have been, you know, um, mid 90s. And I spent eight years on that Argentina novel. And uh, that is still not published. That's one of those first novel stories. Right. Um, lots of uh, almost there. And maybe I'll try to go back to it sometime because I still think it's got it's got some potential. Um, but it was a really heavy story and was set in uh, the uh, time of the Desaparecidos and you know the Dirty War in, in the late '70s in Argentina. And uh, I did talk to a lot of people who lost family, who you know disappeared and thrown into secret prisons to die and things like that when I was there. Um, mm. So it's very heavy, and I decided well you know, while I'm trying to publish that, maybe I'll try something that'll just lift me up a little bit more. Maybe I'll try writing a fantasy. I love fantasy all my life. And, you know, as opposed to not getting published at all, the first fantasy novel got taken instantly, mm -hmm. book deal, and, you know, and I've been busy with fantasy ever since. It was, it's not really the plan, you know, it was, it was supposed to be a little detour from my serious literary career. Uh, but, uh, you know, yes. it's, uh, it's been a blessing. God, I love it so much. And I found you can do so many things. You're, you're free to do things stylistically in fantasy. Um, because I don't think, you know, compared to all the years I spent around uh, literary writers, you know, in big quotes, I think uh, there's not quite so much self-consciousness about what's in style and what's the fad in, stylistically. Now we in, in the science fiction and fantasy world we have our obsessions, you know, some of which never go out of style like dragons, and some of which you know may come and go like steampunk. But stylistically, you can jazz around, you can try things, and everyone says, "Great, you know, if you wrote a good story, I'm really glad to try it that way." I found more often in the literary world, it's sort of like oh they're using omniscience don't they know that's out of style now you know you know and, and it's just you don't deal with any of that bullshit in science fiction and fantasy or very right. very little anyway so, right yeah so. <laughs> you just may have a couple of readers that are like really <laughs> yeah right exactly yeah. so um so uh as far as 
your writing process, how has it, how has it changed over the years from your, you know, your first, this book may never get published or maybe one day I'll go back to it to now. Like, do you, do you plot everything out? Do you outline? Do you just jot stuff down and just see where it goes? You know, do you, are you, do are you a gardener or architect? <laughs> I plot like crazy. I think the big difference now is that, um, so what happened the very first time I plotted out a novel is what's happened every single time after that. Only the first time it terrified me and after a destination in mind and I eventually get to that destination but the carefully chosen set of turns that I've mapped out I never stay there it's mm. kind of like you know if if you've got a paved road straight to where you're going and you've also got a, an off-road vehicle you know, um, and, and maybe inner ear trouble or something like that. So you're off the road and back on it and off the road and back on it. And you see a lot more interesting things. Maybe that's a terrible metaphor because those things do awful environmental damage. But you know, you may have like six different ways that you could get to your destination and the back roads may just be more beautiful. Mm -hmm. you know? And so I often end up on the back roads or you know, sometimes they turn into shortcuts, usually they don't. But, um, but that's okay because as long as you get to the destination or some vantage point on that destination, you know, and it's, it's, I think what felt like, oh, I can't plan. I can't stick to a plan and, and created all that fear. It turned out, you know, as I looked at my process, you know, in hindsight, it was just about staying inspired and excited because once, if it's really a detailed plan, then you're sort of painting, by, you're, you're filling out a form in a way you're, you're, you're executing, somebody else's thing because that somebody else is who you were you know a month ago when you wrote the plan mm -hmm. it's just not as exciting um, and when you, <laughs> you you come to a fork in the road it's like wow over there there's this this ghoul and you didn't have a ghoul in this chapter before and and you know and over here it's just you solve the problem really quickly let's go let's go get in trouble with the ghoul much more fun. yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> don't yeah. don't take the path of least, least resistance <laughs> yeah exactly um who uh who were i guess some of your your major influences uh growing up and in, 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 mm -hmm. you know what who inspired you to write well the big predictable answers of course like tolkien for sure um one I found it's not quite a writer who's not as well known in this country, um, although she has really read very much for kids, but she's just such a beautiful writer. Susan Cooper, The Dark is Rising. I don't know if you've ever heard of her, but um, she, you know, that series, it's really, it is for little kids, but her prose, you know, I, I'm in my early 50s and I still read the prose and just stop in my tracks because it's so beautiful. And I think that she decided that there would be, there were like four or five kids in the world who, who read at a high enough level for her prose, but were still young enough to hang with her little kid's story. Mm. And then it turned out that there were like four or 5 million of them because she did really quite well. But um, I've, I've come across very few writers who just said, I'm going to write this like I'm writing for an adult with a degree in English, but I'm writing a young kid's story and it's gorgeous and it works. Hmm. So she was a big influence. And then um, Ursula Le Guin, for sure. Um, although she is one of those people who seems to, to take uh, her plan and stick with it 
you know, she, she's a, she's not a writer who's like me in many senses at all. Um, but someone described her as having a real moral imagination. And I think that sank in at a really early age. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, you can't say that she has a sense of humor. <laughs> I don't think she does. <laughs> but she's such a brilliant person, brilliant writer, and she creates things of such beauty. Um, or I, you know, I could say it in past tense now because we've lost her, alas, a few years ago. But um, she was a huge influence. Um, John Crowley, Little Big, um, was a book that really changed me. And then when I was a little bit older, you know, um, I started getting into some of the like, 19th century classics um, and early 20th century classics. You know, I loved uh, E.M. Forrester, Virginia Woolf. Um, and Latin Americans, I got into, I had a Garcia Marquez phase like a lot of writers do. Um, yeah, I mean, I could go on this subject, I could tie you up all day, um, but those are some, those are some early ones. Then I got into the Russians in a big way, Chekhov and some other short story writers, so. So, so well-read is, uh, is, is putting it lightly. <laughs> well, I'm obsessed with, with getting lost in books. That's, that's, my, that's my safe place, you know, mm -hmm. lost inside a fictional world. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I feel like that's true of a lot of us. Yeah, it, but then I should also say the other big influence. You know, it it wasn't a writer, but uh, Dungeons and Dragons. I won't lie or hide it anymore. I'm not ashamed. <laughs> <laughs> I used to hide it when I was getting my MFA because they, you know, they didn't even want to know that you touched fantasy. And if I'd let it be known that I was a role playing gamer too, I would have you know been made to stand in the closet or something. You've gotten the evil eye and been told to stay in the corner. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I actually have a friend. I won't name him, but he um, he's in a very good MFA program. And he told me they basically engineered to, they had offered him in, uh, a scholarship and, you know, entry to this very good MFA program. And they engineered to uh, cancel his offer when they found out that he was basically writing science fiction interesting so so foolish but i'm glad to say that doesn't that kind of thing happens a lot less than it did a few decades ago mm. yeah, so. interesting well, let's um let's talk a little bit about your books uh so i want to uh just kind of take a uh, i guess a, a a trip to the past and talk a little bit about the the, the, the chathrin Bo uh, voyage so can you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about the series uh you know what it's about um the, the books involved, and then we'll kind of go on to, uh, to, to your newer stuff. Absolutely, yeah. Well, so the, the first series is sort of an adult slash young adult crossover, young adult adult crossover series. Um, and maybe a little bit of that sort of uh, Susan Cooper trying to have more than one audience um, approach, but uh, it's a big, sprawling, nautical, epic fantasy story. Um, across four big thick books. I think that, you know, total page count is like 2,200 pages for the four wow. books. Um, and uh, it's about empire and race and, oh, about uh, a spell that goes wrong and starts making animals erupt spontaneously into human intelligence and how many of them go mad and some of them have to hide it underground. And so many other things, you know, it's, it's got just plot coming out of its ears, you know, three continents and, you know, four empires and multiple intelligent species. And I really had the time of my life writing that, um, that series. And uh, it, um, 
that kept me uh, busy for quite a long time. It was my first, uh, my first sale, actually. You know, I had never made a, a dime off my fiction in any form before. Um, you know, they they took the Red Wolf Conspiracy, which is the first one, and and, and uh, it was initially supposed to be a trilogy, but it grew into four before I finished it. And um, I think I may. I, I mean, I, I absolutely will go back to that uh, series at some point to write at least uh, one more book. It's you know, it's already there in notes. I don't know if that'll be the very next thing I do after this trilogy is done. Um, mm. But, um, you know, I, um, I always wanted to have uh, that kind of, you, you know, the, the sort of writer, I guess, or reader I, I was that uh, was picking up things a bit too old for me. So although I start with teenage protagonists, they grow up really fast across the four books. And um, it doesn't really resemble YA that much by the, by the time it's over. I mean, perhaps to the uh, alarm of some parents who are reading it with their kids, I don't know. But uh, it's, you know, I, I do have trouble with uh, genre boundaries mm. <laughs> as my long suffering editors will tell you, but uh, it's, uh, so it, it, it is YA and it is a grown up story both um but depending on which end of the story you're talking about it's more one than the other so right. i finished that and then um i dove into i wanted to try something that was unambiguous unambiguously for adults and this new series the fire sacraments is very much that i think that um war and the the terrible crime of war and the you know horrific waste that war is was on my mind very much you know more than i knew at the time when i when i started writing it but I also, you know, I have been thinking about how, I've been thinking about how the genre fantasy and epic fantasy in particular struggles with a couple of things. Um, I mean, struggles with lots of things as it should, you know, we, we always try to do better than we've done before, but, um, mm -hmm. and, you know, we're, we're paying a lot of attention to how we're struggling with gender and race and things like that now, which is terrific. And those are things I struggle with always, um, you know, trying to challenge myself to do better with each, you know, each time I launch into a story. But what I was thinking about with the fire sacraments was a little different at first, and that was how the genre deals honestly, or perhaps less than honestly, with um, the trauma of violence, and particularly the psychic trauma and, and the the wounds it leaves behind in the mind. Um, and I wanted to try to do a better job with that than a lot of the epic fantasies I've been reading. Um, mm. So that was part of it. And, um, and then um, I wanted to think a bit about poverty. I mean, we have lots and lots of stories in epic fantasy of the, the humble person who rises to great heights. Um, they're often, and then they got rich and powerful and those earlier problems were a memory kind mm. of stories. So, I guess I found my way to imagining some characters who are, they're village kids, they're, you know, they're peasants and they remain so, and they have unbelievable things that happen to them, but um, they really don't ever lose sight or get revealed to be something other than they are. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's been really fun. It's been in, in, in Master Assassins, you know, I've got show and tell here for you, Master Assassins, the first one, which came out in 2018, um, the point of view is it sticks with just one of these two brothers. I, you know, my, my brothers are Kondri and Mektu and they're, they're conscripts, village conscripts caught up in this mad religious war they don't want anything, anything to do with. Um, 
And they really have very little experience of the world. They've spent their entire lives in a very small, isolated backcountry area. And you never leave Condry's point of view in book one. So you really don't know more than he does about the world. And he leaves his home for the first time in, in Master Assassins and starts realizing how much he doesn't know. Um, and that was a neat challenge for me because, you know, I, I got to start with the zoom lens really tight on Condry. And then slowly as he moves through the book, it widens and he begins to figure out, you know, oh, the world isn't quite what I assumed it was. And then when we get to book two in Sidewinders, that the lens just pulls way, way back. And we have, um, we have like six points of view and they're spread out all over the continent of Urath. And, uh, and two of them at least are among the most worldly people on the whole continent. Um, and so suddenly it's like, you know, you've been, uh, and, and also, you know, in Master Assassins with all the, crazy road trip kind of adventures that happen, you go over a, a pretty small piece of the continent. I mean, the, the, the total arc of the story is, is a relatively limited area. And I think it only covers about 28 days, 28 very intense days in the lives of these fellows. But um, when I uh, was drawing my sketch map for the artist for book two, you know, the, for the cartographer who turned it into a really nice map, I realized that the whole map for Master Assassins was one little corner of this larger map and that the brothers literally walk across a, a desert twice the width of the Sahara in Sidewinders. And then we have these things going on in other parts of the country, uh, of the continent as well. And they're all slowly converging on the same city um, uh, where book three is, is focused. Uh, but you know, so suddenly this much, much, much bigger story is is unfolding. And Connery mm. is still playing catch up. I mean, he is one of the biggest, he is you know, still the, the most prominent point of view. Uh, and he's trying to make up for a life lived in a little village in the mountains. So, mm. so what I'm getting from you is you like these like sprawling epics. <laughs> <laughs> or at least I can't contain the story to less. I mean... <laughs> You know, I sit down and tell myself, I'm going to write a short story and it's going to be short, damn it. If I cut it 20%, I can still call it a novelette, you know? Right. Um, it's just, it seems to be the way my brain is wired. Um, You're just going to start so writing, yeah, like, oh, I'm going to add this and I got to add this. And oh, that'd be really good in here. <laughs> yeah, it is like that. You know, it, it's, 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 I remember an early teacher said, you know, you're like the, the sorcerer's apprentice standing in front of the cauldron, just throwing more things in to see what's going to blow up. And, and yeah, that's like that. I, I'm not much of a short story writer anymore because all my short stories grow, you know. Oh, your short stories turn into novellas and novels and yeah. Yeah, <laughs> door stoppers. True. Yeah. So I end up with these files full of notes towards future novels far more than I'll ever write. But I live in awe of short stories because I love reading them. And um, I managed to get one written in a Clark's world took it. I mean, at least you could pat yourself on the back for getting one. <laughs> yeah, one. That's right. Yeah. So. 
Um, so talk a little bit about um, the nature of genius and the cult of personality uh, in book two. Yeah, sure. I um, guess, you know, we were chatting earlier. That's one of those uh, or two of those themes that I sort of realized after the fact I was thinking about. Um, and, you know, sometimes you look back on what you've written and realize, oh, I was I was meditating on that in a sense all along and didn't realize it. Um, and yeah, precisely so. I mean, um, I think this trilogy overall is going to be uh, reflecting on what we mean when we talk about genius. Um, and, you know, other than I think I was, I was trying to make notes about this, we always think it's in someone else and we never, unless we're like crazy egotists like Donald Trump, we never think it's um, in ourselves, right? I'm, I know quite well I'm not a very stable or any other kind of genius. I'm, you know, just a just a carpenter who keeps sawing away. But um, uh, I do think, you know, I was I was looking back at the stories that have really, really, really stayed with me and mattered to me. And you know, often yes, they have incredible deeds in them. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're just you know the story of the inner relations between a few people. But what makes it moving and and shocking and exciting to me it it's always the filter of an exceptional mind you know that's and I, I realized that and thought that's what really gets me to sit down in the chair and plug in again it's like you know and and, and it's sort of a banal example in a way but I'll talk about uh you know Frodo for a minute because Tolkien doesn't dwell on the interior side of things, you know, he's, he's incredibly brief where that is concerned so that he can make room for 16 more pages of describing the, the runny mead knoll wash or whatever the hell, you know, another piece of, another piece of, of uh, landscape. But uh, so he does it with very small brush strokes, so you could almost miss it. But Frodo is the exceptional personality in that story in a lot of ways. He's weak as hell. I mean, he's physically weak. He has no... Um, he has no powers per se, but in key moments, he, he sees what no one else succeeds in seeing, that he has to be the one that stands up in the council of Elrond and says, I'll take this because, you know, you great and powerful people have just shown that you can't, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's really, it's, it's an astonishing thing, but, you know, he, he keeps going, and then in another sense, so does Sam. He's also the one who realizes at a certain point that, you know, not only am I doomed to march off to my almost certain death with these wonderful people bearing this thing that's eating away at my soul, but then later on he realizes, no, I can't even bring them along. And he has the, he has the, the inner strength to both see that, admit it to himself and act on it. And that's the wonder, that's the shocking wonder that makes these other things for me, you know, really stay with me. Uh -huh. And so, and you know, so I, I call that in a, in a sense, for me, I think genius has come to mean in, in my reading life and to some degree in my writing life, the person that for whatever reason sees what no one else will either let themselves see or is, or is capable of seeing or both. And those are the, the characters that I get really fascinated with. And they're not always sort of heroic, upright people at all. I mean, the character that turned out to be the most popular in, in um, 
Master Assassins and Sidewinders is this the other brother of Mektu. I mean, the one I was telling you about whose point of view I write from is Condry, and he's very straight-laced. He's very, you know, you you want Condry at your side if you're in trouble. He's a he's a good man in a tight corner, etc. And his brother is just a train wreck. He's just a hopeless individual. He ought to be dead by 24. You know, he his his brother and his uncle and everyone who actually cares for him, they, they want to smack him five times a day. He's one of those people who perceives what the, the absolute worst thing to say in a situation is and compulsively has to say it just because he can't not, because right. it's too tense if he doesn't. He's a, and it, so that made him so much fun to write. And, and he's, you know, he's a child in a 24 year old's body too. Mm -hmm. he, he confesses, I think it was something that ended up on the, on the cutting room floor, so to speak. Um, but in a version of Master Assassins, I, I have him rambling on as he does, and he confesses that he wants to be an actor. Now, remember, he's he's like in, he's like in picture the the la, the deepest corner of the Ozark Hills. You know, there's nothing there for him to base an acting career ambition on at all, and he can't go anywhere else because he'd have to travel like ten thousand miles. Um, and so that you know, they look at him like he has two heads. Right. But he's, he's a terrible fish out of water. And so, you know, that was my first beginning glimpse that he's not just an asshole. He's also gifted, right? I had, I had editors saying, please don't, don't write him this way. Tone him down or cut him out of your novel. He's such a crazy pig. Nobody's going to want to read him, you know. And I'm glad that on this occasion I, I stuck to my guns because... He is, he's a real jerk sometimes. Right. And he's also, he's the one who sometimes sees what nobody else can see and, mm. and manages to save the day in different ways. Mm. So, so that's the, that's a long answer to the nature of genius question. And then, you know, I won't say much about the other side of it. That, you know, I, I am also, it turns out I'm writing about cult of personality a lot. And, you know, like I said, things process for years before they work their way in. But um, so I don't think it was Trump directly, honestly, because I think it was it was something that, um, you know, I'd written most of Master Assassins before Trump came on the scene. But I'd been thinking about how individuals who are very good at lying, both to themselves and others, have such an oversized effect on this world. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I wrote about... Um, well, one, one person I was thinking of actually is Robert Mugabe, who like, in a small way, like the, the prophet in, um, in this trilogy, began as a true liberation hero and you know, became something much more problematic in, in the life of his people. In the case of the Fire Sacraments trilogy, the prophet becomes something far, 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 far more problematic. She she goes deeply insane and decides that she is a messiah and um, that her 11 sons are uh, destined to become the 11 kings of, of the continent and that everyone else must kneel. Um, but it, uh, it was a really fun character to write and I realized that if this was going to work, she had to be someone who had basically convinced all million plus members of her, of her people, of her ethnic group, that um, since she liberated them from centuries of, of bondage and slavery, that she really was a messiah, which mm -hmm. was not, you know, if you were going to choose anyone to be a messiah, that would be the person you'd choose, somebody who'd done that for you. But she systematically, in, you know, a way that would make North Korea, you know, envious, built a 
built a cult around herself. Yeah. And, and I'm still unwinding just what that is going to mean for the whole continent, um, but it's going to mean war and it will wars has come already. Hmm. Um, so. Thank you, Um So you, you've already touched on one of these, we'll go to the next one. Um, and you mentioned this before our chat. Did, did the current pandemic have any impact on your writing? I mean, I know Master Assassins clearly came out well before last year, yeah. uh, was the, the pandemic even was talked about. But I mean, you know, has it has it did it affect you at all writing Sidewinders? And do you know if it's going to have any effect on the third novel in the series? Well, the first thing you did was freak me out. I mean, in addition to like the, the freak out that we were all living through, right? You know, the, the actual effects of the pandemic, uh -huh. just with the little trivial window of my of my writing life. It freaked me out a lot because I thought people, you know, I had a panic attack that people are going to think, oh, he's just exploiting the situation in, in a crass kind of way. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to have to put disclaimers in the front of my book that, oh, please believe me. And I'd already planned it before it happened. And, you know, and go look at the publication date of book one, you know. This is the first book. And, yeah, right. <laughs> but um, then I chilled out <laughs> and I realized, um, you know, I just just tell the truth. Um, it is it's just weirdly um, echoing reality. I mean, literally the the way people die of my imagined plague is uh, you know the, the the plague is called the throat rust, and their their throats develop uh, deposits that tighten and tighten and tighten around their windpipe until they can't breathe. So you know that with, with people dying in ventilators, I thought shit. You know, this is just too close to home. Yeah. Um, but uh, th it, there's a big, big difference in the sense that, so the, the setup in this series, everything takes place on one continent, uh, the continent of Urath. And the curious thing, as far as the plague is concerned, is that Urathis are mostly immune and always have been. Um, it only kills about one in 10,000 Urathis. And I think that's the number. Um, Whereas in the rest of the world, all the other continents, it kills like one in eight. Mm. And consequently, or at least this is what the Urathis are told, um, a quarantine has been forced on Urath because um, the rest of the world is just damned afraid that if, uh, if it gets out, they'll just die and die and die and die. Um, and it does get out still in ways that are, you know, part of the mystery we get to explore. But um, so for 300 years, the people of Urath have been held in this really, really rigid quarantine. And you can tell that um, technologically and in other ways, uh, economically, things have advanced and gone on everywhere else on the planet more than in Urath. So they're, um, but they're, you know, this just sneaks in in tiny little accidents and details and leaks of information. Um, because really Urath doesn't know much about what's going on in the outer world. Mm. But we begin to find out that this story of why they're locked in quarantine is not as simple as that. And, you know, without giving a big spoiler, um, there is real money to be made in being uh, the ones who get to decide who lives and who dies in the world. So, mm. so all of that will be revealed, but... Um, <laughs> So, you know, it isn't, so it's not like people, there's not every 10 pages, somebody isn't dying of the plague because it's all, all the death is happening on other continents for mm -hmm. the most part. 
So it's this specter right through the novel, and yet it isn't a day-to-day -day reality for, for the people, except that they're under this quarantine. Right. Um, what was your, I guess, true inspiration for this series? I mean, it was kind of like what I was talking about. I, I always... I always have a character before anything else. That just seems to be the way my brain works. That um, you know, I realize that I'm imagining a person or a few people, and um, you know, maybe the beginnings of a circumstance that they're in. But yeah, I, I think I imagine someone in trouble, and just what the nature of the trouble is is very hazy at first. Um, and in that case, this was you know, Kondry and Mekdu. I knew I wanted to write a story about siblings, um, and. Uh, and then, you know, so I had this sort of a feeling of tension and danger and, you know, really tough situation and a, a sort of a mirror between, excuse me, the outer situation and the crisis of their relations because they have the most intensive love-hate relationships. I mean, Kondry is always reflecting on the high likelihood that Mektu's idiocy and irresponsibility is likely to get both of them killed. Mm -hmm. and he, he's fighting this temptation. He's, he's in ashamed of to just walk away you know he's you know he has this dialogue you know some people can't be saved some people you, sometimes you have to cut bait mm -hmm. and and of course he, he thinks that and he hates himself because mechdu has no one else and then he says but if i don't i'm going to die along with mechdu you know we're living we're living in a dictatorship where the, the one thing you can't do is talk back Mektu always talks back. He can't not. You know, he just <laughs> can't. can't. <laughs> he just can't not. You know, there's literally a scene in Sidewinders where somebody has got a knife to his throat, and and the guy with the knife is begging him to shut the fuck up, <laughs> not because he's got any power in the situation, not like there's some third party that's going to hear them, just because I can't stand it. I don't want to kill you. Just shut up. And he can't. You know, so. Where was I going with this? So yeah, the brothers, that was the inspiration. So you know, they have a really bad outer situation and a really bad inner situation. Mm. And so when I, when I knew I had that sort of a feeling, I just sat back and thought, what tangible circumstances might lead to this sort of, this sort of instinctive feeling for a situation that I have? And then I started building the world around them. Mm. And like I said, you know, I was thinking about war and I was thinking about poverty. And um, so all of that, I guess, was was swirling around, you know, they, the story, it kind of grew outward in layers. And the first layer was the, this prison like um, army camp. I mean, it very much is a prison. You, you go there, you serve the prophet and the sin is talking back. Yeah, but also, you know, the unpardonable sin is not believing. So running away means to no longer believe in the in the, the holy war. Mm -hmm. And but they don't believe. And you know, they, they have lost their faith. Very early in, in Master Assassins, we realize they've they realize they've lost their faith. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly life is is unbearable and they must go. Yeah. yeah so well, uh, can you hold up the uh, the books one more time? Uh you let everybody bet. see their, your beautiful covers. So this one came out today. This is Whoa. book two, Sidewinders. But I should say, people are telling me it works as a standalone too. And that was my hope, that you could read it as a standalone if you wanted to. However, it very much is part two. And this is part one, Master Assassins. Came out and today. Master Assassins is a phenomenal novel. That was one of my top reads in 2018. So I Thank highly so recommend much, it. Man.
Yeah, hey, you could think you could thank Mark Lawrence because he was like, read this book, and I was like, okay, we'll do. <laughs> whenever whenever Sir Lawrence tells me to do something, I do it. Mm. <laughs> I really need to have like a little icon with Michael Mark Lawrence there, but but no, I mean just today too. You know, he's in UK time. Before I even woke up, he had said Happy Publication Day and, and sent out copies of his Goodread reviews. He has single-handedly done so much for me. I'm really deeply grateful. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, well, uh, so yes, yeah, so everybody, you can buy copies of both books today. Uh, it's out and ready, readily available. I know the audio for Sidewinders comes out in, I believe it's September. September 8th, uh, from, yeah, from yeah. Tantor audio. Delay, yeah. So, uh, you know, if you enjoy audiobooks, uh, you can go ahead and go pick up Master Assassins and then pick up uh, Sidewinders uh, in September. You can also pick up uh, Robert's first series, The Chatherine Voyage, which is a four-buck series. Uh, it's widely available everywhere uh and i highly recommend doing that uh but robert thank you so much uh congratulations on pub day today and uh we'll do this again soon because i don't want to wait another six months after a virtual convention to chat with you <laughs> thank you so much i loved tbr come by the way and i love this chat so i just i really appreciate it and keep doing the great work you do david thank you so much robert we'll talk again all right. soon all right take care now see ya